Again, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, I thank you for this time of year that we so often study and meditate on the, all that you have done for us in your first advent. Father, again, we thank you for the virgin birth, the miraculous virgin conception. And yet sometimes, because we are so familiar with the term and we've known about the doctrine, it's easy to not realize how very, very, very important it is. Father, I pray that you would give us a sharp mind this morning as we look at this doctrine. You'd give us wisdom as to how it applies to our own personal lives. Lord, this truth should transform us and continue to transform us. And as we seek to share with our family and friends, May this be one of the main truths that come out, how miraculous it is. Father, I pray that you'd, again, keep us focused. It's easy for our minds to wander. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you've drawn us here. And, and we just ask that, uh, that you would convict our hearts in, in the areas that need conviction and that we would be changing and growing for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to actually be in uh, Matthew. We're going to go to Matthew 22 first, and then we're going to be in Matthew 1. Larry King. I don't think Larry's uh, doing CNN any longer, is he? A few years ago, though, the talk show host was once asked by another person, an interviewer, if he could choose anyone from all of history, who would he choose to interview? He said, Jesus Christ. The questioner said, and what would you like to ask him? And notice what King replied. I would like to ask Jesus Christ if he indeed was virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. End quote. Larry King did understand one thing, that if indeed Jesus Christ was virgin conceived and virgin born, that would change all of history. That would change all of history for any individual if they truly understand that that is a truth. If you go to Matthew 22, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question that really starts us off on this journey. Even though this is Matthew 22, we're going to go right back to Matthew 1. But the idea is this. Who is Jesus Christ. Who is the Messiah? And that's the question he asks in Matthew 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them. So again, Christ asking the Pharisees, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now notice how they respond. They said to him, the son of David. That was obvious. The Messiah would be the son of David. He had to be the son of David. But then this is what the Lord said. He said to them, how, do, how then does David in the Spirit, in other words, as he is being inspired by the Spirit, call him Lord, saying, and then verse 44 is actually a quote back to Psalms 110, exact quote, and it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, now catch what he says, The Lord, the Father, said to my Lord, David speaking, My Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So, so Christ asked the Pharisees, whose son is he? 
speaking of the Christ, the Messiah, and they get it right as far as half of it. Well, he's the son of David. But then Christ says, but wait, why is it that back in Psalms 110, verse 1, David said, the Lord said to my, that being David speaking, my Lord, how is it that, well, we understand, like, if you go like this, that there's David, the patriarchs, David, and then under David genealogy, you would have David and you would have his son. All right, that makes sense. Christ is the son of David. In fact, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you see that. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Okay, we understand that Jesus came from David's lineage. We looked at that two weeks ago. But the second part of it, but the Lord said to my Lord, he's not only David's son, but the Messiah, the Christ, is also over David. That's the problem. How can you both be the son and also, in other words, the son of David, and also we'll find out the son of God? That passage in Matthew 22 is very, very important because he asks a direct question to a group of unbelievers, the Pharisees, and then actually gives them the answer. He says, well, how is it that David called his son my Lord? You wouldn't do that. I would never call one of my kids my Lord Carson. He's my son. He's under me, okay, in that sense. All right? Even though he might like the wording, it'll never happen. <laughs> See, the Jewish leaders believed that Messiah would be the son of David, that again, he would be a member of the royal lineage of David. But they didn't understand that Messiah would be God in human flesh. We sang about Emmanuel, God with us, many times today. That's what they didn't They didn't expect him to be of the royal line of David and also God himself in human flesh. That's what Christ was getting at in Matthew 22. That's what we actually see played out in Matthew chapter 1. Whereas the first part of Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, is to point to the fact that indeed Jesus Christ is from the lineage of David, the son of David, verse 1. Now as we look at verses 18 to verse 25, we're going to find out he is not only the son of David, but he's also the son of God. He is, not all, he is not only part of the lineage of David, he is actually where David would call him my Lord. Now again, we've been looking at, well, we looked at Matthew a couple weeks ago, and we just want to make sure that, I want to make sure that this is just imprinted in your mind. I want, the, today, this is one of the things. You know, familiarity, many times they say, breeds contempt, right? You hear something, you hear it, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I said we're going to be talking about the virgin birth, oh, really? I've heard that before. I've heard about it. I, I trust that because this is the this is this is the most important doctrine about and, and concerning the entire Christmas story. It has to happen exactly the way the Scripture says, or else everything else falls apart. And we'll see that even in a moment. But let's just look at these verses 18 to 25. I just want to break it down. We're not going to actually exegete the passage like point A, point but this is the outline of it. And then we're going to do more of a, a, a topical study on the virgin birth for this morning. But, but look at verse 18. You see the conception of the child. Verse 18, Matthew 1:18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. I love it. He just brings, puts it down into three parts. After... His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Okay, after that happened. 
before they came together, i.e. had sex, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Think about that. Betrothal happened. They weren't yet not, uh, did not consummate the marriage because they weren't actually not even married. They were just betrothed to each other. But they were found, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So that's the conception. Actually, that's just one verse. That's really the only verse in Scripture that really just breaks it down that simply. And then it goes on. Then Joseph, her, her husband, why did you say husband? I thought you, well, betrothal is, when a person would betroth, you were considered married, though you were not living together yet. That would not usually not come for a year later. I mean, but that was a binding contract. In fact, for a person to be betrothed and then want to break it, you actually had to go through a process of divorce. It was that serious. Wasn't? Don't think of betrothal like our engagement, because engagement, you know, you can get, get engaged and then throw the ring down the hallway and say, I'm done with it. I don't want to have anything to do with you, and it's done. Here you had to, you know, you actually had to go through a process. Well, let's look at the explanation. Oh, excuse me, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. See, because he understood it was a binding contract, this betrothal. But let's look at the explanation by the angel, verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel, i.e. Gabriel of the Lord, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David... Do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for, the, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So he gives the explanation. It's not your child. It's not only not your child, obviously, because he knew that, but it's no one else's child as well. No other man has slept with her. It's from the Holy Spirit. It's, it's supernatural. And look at verses 21 to 23. This is the confirmation from the Scriptures. In other words, this was foretold. Verse 21, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Foretold in the Old Testament. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled. Maybe you want to underline that. He prophesied. Which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. By the way, where's that verse found? Isaiah chapter 714, right? Okay, so back then, it was prophesied. So we see the conception, verses 18 and 19, the explanation by the angel, verse 20. We see that it was from the Old Testament, it was prophesied. And now look at how Joseph responds. How does he respond? Verse 24, Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. By the way, I believe that happened after Mary came back from visiting Elizabeth. She was about three months pregnant at this point, starting to show. That's why he was starting, whoa, you know, what, what, what has happened to my virgin wife? You know, my virgin betrothed wife. And the Lord tells him, you know, uh, assures him, gives him confidence in, oh, this is the plan from God, okay? Now, that's the outline. We're going to keep popping back into this passage in Luke, but again, I just wanted to give you the outline. Now, let's just break this down into three simple parts, okay, as far as the aspects of the virgin birth. And the first aspect of the virgin birth is that the attacks on the virgin birth. There's been a lot of attacks over the years on the virgin birth. And let me just give you some. Again, why would they attack the virgin birth? 
because he had no other fact in the Christmas story is more important than the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. If that falters, everything else fails. See, if he's just an illegitimate child of Mary's infidelity, or if this is actually, if Jesus Christ is just a child of Joseph, then he is not God. That's just that simple. It has to be, he has to be virgin born exactly like Matthew says, or else he's not God. If he's not God, then what does that make him? Because that's what he proclaimed himself to be. What does that make him? A liar, a sinner. And if he has lied, his salvation is a hoax and we're damned. Do you see how important the virgin birth is? Everything rests on this truth. That's why I think we need to keep understanding how important it is and be able to defend it. I'm going to give you a, a, a statistic. They say like with ministers, and again, they're going across the board on all the denominations, but only between 18 and 60% of ministers, depending on the, 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 uh, the denomination, believe in the virgin birth. That means in some denominations, there's as high as 80% of the ministers, pastors, do not believe in the virgin birth. And even among other, just what you would consider good denominations, from what I'm gathering, there's a high percentage, 30, 40%, that do not believe, they would not stake their life on the virgin birth. There's a lot of, a lot of attacks because it is such a crucial issue. I, I was reading on you know, how some of the haters and skeptics of God, like one author said this, that he claimed that Jesus was, again, the illegitimate child of a Roman soldier who had a love affair with Mary. And he pointed out the reason was because she lived in Nazareth, and Nazareth was known for prostitution. All right. See, just any grasping at anything other than what the Scripture says. An 8th century extremist anti-Christian cult popularized popularized the teaching that after Mary married Joseph, a neighbor came into her in the darkness of night, had sex with her, and she did not know it was Joseph. Anything to grasp, anything other than what the truth is. You know, I think sometimes it comes through this. Um, you know, now, this day and age, actually a virgin can have a baby. Well, think about this. In, in, in vitro fertilization. Can be a virgin. Now, let's, let's uh, and some have said, well, see, you know, virgins have babies. Well, let's understand what we're talking about here when, when it comes to the virgin conception is that there was no male sperm, right? That's the whole point. That is the entire thing. It's all had to do with Mary's substance. Uh, pagan religions over and over again have all these stories that kind of point to a, a similarity to the virgin birth. Um, I think these are attacks by Satan so that people say, no, I understand what you're talking about. My religion has the same thing. Examples. The Romans believed that the god Zeus impregnated the human woman Samil without contact and that she conceived Diocenes, i.e. the Lord of the earth. Okay, So in other words, the Romans had this this teaching this story that uh, one of theirs was virgin conceived but by the god Zeus. The Babylonians believe that Tammuz was conceived uh, in the priestess, actually Nimrod's wife, by a sunbeam. That's what they taught. Do you see what happens? We come along and say virgin conceived and they say, well, no, I have a story like that. 
Um, there's an Akkadian story. Tukla II told how the, the gods created him in the womb of his mother. In fact, King Sennacherib, which we find in Scripture, claimed that the goddess of procreation superintended the conception of him. <laughs> so he actually proclaimed it himself. A Buddha. At the conception of Buddha, his mother supposedly saw a great white elephant entering his, her belly. Well, sometimes women do look kind of large, but not that large. Uh, <laughs> I better not say anything. Cause I, <laughs> nah. Nah, it, it, it's going to go really. I'll be in a ditch and they'll have to you know, throw me a line. Um, Hinduism has claimed that the divine Vishnu descended into the womb of Devaki and, and was born as, as her son Krishna. So in other words, those main religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, have stories of, of divine intervention of the leaders. There is even a legend that Alexander the Great was virgin-born by the power of the god Zeus through the snake that impregnated his mother, Olympias. So again, I mean, it's all I'm saying, and, and actually these stories are also similar in Egypt, Egyptian stories, Indian stories, Chinese stories, over and over and over again. You see parts of this type of a scenario where somehow a supernatural conception, supernatural birth. And you say, well, all right, so what's the point of all this? The idea is this, trying to make a counterfeit, trying to downplay the supernaturalness of our Lord's conception and birth. Okay. By the way, don't confuse the virgin birth with Roman Catholicism's doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Because what that says is that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb as a sinless being preserved from the effects of Adam's sin. That's hinting also at, again, destroying... By the way, that's totally false. Remember in, uh, what Mary said in Luke 147 in, in her, her praise song, God my Savior. She admitted that she was a sinner in need of a Savior. So anything that, that looks or, or tries to promote the sinlessness of Mary or somehow she can, she can give uh, extra grace... Her birth, her birth was normal... <laughs> And quite honestly, the way she uh, birthed Christ was normal. Again, it was just a conception. Uh, back in the 70s, and I know that's 40 years ago, but they did a study of students in Protestant seminaries. And they found this, that 56% of those students studying the, for the ministry rejected the idea of virgin birth. Now, I only say that because 40 years ago means a lot of those same guys, what I just told you earlier about the ministers, see, they were students back then. And apparently, many of them have never repented of their error. So you, you ask, you know, just take a broad, and again, I'm talking about all different types of churches, all different types of denominations, but understand, many, 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 almost 50% are not going to agree with the fact that he was virgin born. I think of Romans chapter 3 when it says, For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? God forbid, yea, let God be true and every man a liar. I like that. You know, the scriptures proclaim many truths that are very hard. Supernatural truths. People come along, I don't agree with it. That isn't, that isn't disqualified. That isn't, that isn't negate truth. It's just, well, you're a fool. Right? I always, I always think of this. Some people, you know, want to reject truth 
And I always, and I actually have this vision, you know, this, uh, not vision, but this uh, 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 picture in my mind. I always think of the person going up, and there's a cement wall, right, made out of cement block from Southern Tier Concrete, and uh, <laughs> and the person is saying, you know, I don't agree with this truth, and they just are going up to the wall, and wham, and they hit their head as hard as they can, and they say, boy, that feels good because you know I don't agree, and the and the, and the block wall is the truth of the Word of God. And, and, and every time they disagree with the Word of God, it's like them going, wham! Truth doesn't change. We have to come alongside truth. Because you can kick and scream and, and reject all you want. Not you, but generic. But it's not going to change. Truth is truth. It's like a solid wall. Don't ever base your theology on majority rule, <laughs> majority opinion. Our, our world is spinning down. And there'll be more and more unbelief, but keep focused on the supernaturalness of all that God says about the Lord's birth. So, that's the attacks. There are many. It comes from the ungodly. It comes from religions. It even comes from supposed believers. It even comes from science. But again, it it remains true. Well, let's look at the uniqueness of the virgin birth. The uniqueness. Now again... It is more than an extraordinary birth. Let me give you some extraordinary births that were found in Scripture. I mean, there were some very extraordinary births. Think of Abraham, 100 years old, and Sarah. How old was she? 90. Now, how many of you 90-year-olds want to have a baby? Okay, that's, that is extraordinary. That is unprecedented in biblical history, but she had Isaac. You know, Manoah and his barren wife was told by an angel of the Lord that they would have a son named whom? Who was Manoah? In Judges 13. Samson. Hannah, though barren, prayed and pleaded with God. And through the power of God, she had Samuel, who was the first prophet, final judge, and anointer of kings. I mean, but that was an extraordinary birth. You know, think about Elizabeth. Mary's cousin. It says that she was barren, that she was well advanced in years, that she conceived in old age. Most people put her around 60, 65. But she had John the Baptist. All right? That was extraordinary. That was a gift from God. But none of those special births, Sarah, Manoah's wife, Hannah, Elizabeth, none of those special births was as amazing as, again, the virgin birth of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because, again, in verse 18 of Matthew 1, it says, after the mother was betrothed and before they came together, she was found with child of. And and that word of is the huge one. Okay, that's the huge word. Not of another man, but of the Holy Spirit. That's the conception. God became a zygote in the uterus of a Jewish virgin. Now, it's interesting. It took 17 verses. If you just look at verse 18, it took 17 verses for, the, for Matthew to elaborate on the genealogy of the fact that Jesus Christ was the son of David. But it only took one verse as far as his divine, where he came from, as far as the Son of God. Okay? It took 17 verses for the Son of David shows genealogy down. only took one verse. This Verse 18 is like the key verse. It just kind of summates the whole thing. Now again, there's a lot of other verses that give additional information. 
You go back to the Old Testament. We just quoted one well, within the passage. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 says, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It was foretold in the Old Testament there would be a child that comes. Genesis 3.15. Way, way back. Let's go way, way back. After the curse, as the curses were being given out, it says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, excuse me, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed. Eve's seed. And that's, that's odd because it was ne- a seed was never considered the woman's. It was always the man's. In a technical sense, the seed belongs to the man, and Mary's impregnation by the Holy Spirit is the only instance in human history that a woman had a seed within her that did not come from a man. So even back in Genesis 3.15, we see it. Then in Isaiah 7.14, we see it. Just hints at it. It doesn't give us all the information. It just says a, a virgin's going to conceive. Well, all right, what's, what are the... Giving more information... Well, we can even break it down and um, we can see it and go from the Old Testament, let's say the New Testament, Galatians 4. It says, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Again, no human father in this verse. Born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. 4. Uh, if you go to Matthew 1, verses 1 to 17, you know, I started counting them, begot. Uh, like verse uh, 2, Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and Judah, you know, begot and begot and begot and begot. And all of a sudden you come to verse 16, Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is is called the Christ. So again, a change in gears, not begot, no human father. I'm kind of, maybe I'm rushing too much, but I just want you to see, there's, it was, it was hinted at and, and spoken of in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Really, there's not a lot that's said about it. There's just a few verses and a, and a few key words, and, it, and, and, that's what, and that's how we know that Jesus Christ was not only the Son of David, but also the Son of God. If you go from verse 18, let's go to verse 20. Verse 20. It says, For that, and you might want to highlight that word, um, let's see here. Wait a second. I'm in the wrong passage here. Uh, da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, the second part of verse 20. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That, of, those are key words there. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I, I looked at one of my old theologies uh, from, Pastor, from Dr. Berrickman at Practical, and he said this, about the word that. You see that, by the way, in uh, Matthew one twenty there, and then also in Luke one thirty four, this uh, verse 35, excuse me, the second part of it, it says, Therefore also that Holy One who is, is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is what Dr. Berkman writes. With this truth in view, we can understand why the angel described that which was conceived in Mary as being a holy thing or that... The word that is a, is, is a neuter demonstrative pronoun. I'm not real good at all the, the... But bottom line is neuter, okay? The neuter gender indicates that Mary was the only mother of Jesus' human nature. She was not the mother of his person. She was not the mother of God. In other words, God took her substance and created uh, 
the, the human nature of Jesus Christ. So we see it in Matthew one twenty. We see it again in verse 23. We've already read that. We keep seeing this, this concept. We see it in uh, verse 18 and verse, uh, 20, verse 20 where it says of. Of. The word of means out of. It's out of. Stressing origin. It was out of the Holy Spirit. He was the one that produced, not Joseph. He keeps going. The writer, Matthew, just keeps going back to saying, listen, it was from the Holy Spirit and nothing to do with the human father, Joseph. So again, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, you'd say, well, that's a hard truth. That is a hard truth. You know, I've been trying to wrap my arms around uh, my my thinking. You know, how, how did that happen? Okay, so you have the you have Jesus. He's eternal. How did he? How did all that work? Um, well, you don't do it this way. Okay. A few years ago, a pastor was asked when what he believed about the virgin birth. He said. I could not in print or in public deny or affirm the virgin birth of Christ. When I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. I don't think that's the way... No, I know that's not the way to deal. I mean, there's some other hard truths out there, right? Think about the sovereignty of God. Is that a hard truth? The fact that God is all-knowing? The fact that God is all-knowing... The fact that God knows you're thinking right now, what you're thinking right now, that He has watched you the entire week, He knows what you thought about, and He knows what knows what you've done this last week, and He knows that about every one of us completely. That's a hard truth. That He is all powerful. That the, the that the earth itself is coming to a conclusion. That the conclusion that He's had since the beginning. That indeed. The, the world leaders are not in control ultimately that it is God? That's a hard truth. I mean, that should give us a lot of conviction and a lot of comfort right there, right? Trinity. Think about Trinity. Three persons, one essence. Try to wrap your arms around that one. The impeccability of Christ, that it was impossible for Jesus Christ to have sinned. When he was tempted, that showed who he was because it was impossible for Christ to be tempted to sin. So you, we have a lot of hard truths. So when we come across the virgin birth, it's a hard truth. Okay. Again, we cannot fully get our cognitive arms around this truth. I'm glad Michael Horton wrote that. He says we can't get our complete arms around this truth. We understand it enough to assent to it by faith, but enough to set... I mean, we, we understand it enough to assent to it, it by faith, but not enough to satisfy our curiosity. We still have things like I'm trying to get my arms around a little bit more. It is just that at this point, the Orthodox, the true Christian, are willing to keep silent before the mystery while heretics are carried aloft on the wings of speculation. See, you want to get your arms around it, and you want to say, this is what the Lord, uh, the Lord proclaims in His Word, but I don't have to understand all the aspects, just like I don't have to understand all the aspects of the Trinity, though I know that it is true. There is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, and I understand that. Scripture says it, and I'm going to 
I'm going to embrace that. And with this truth, I think you do the same thing. So we just get our realms around. And all I really want you to work, uh, remember for t- from today is there are a lot of people who are against it, <laughs> but it's a crucial doctrine. And it's something that we have to understand. And throughout Scripture, especially Matthew and Luke, he keeps going back, of the Holy Spirit. So it's produced by God Himself. He is produced by God Himself. Let's look at the last one, the importance of the virgin birth. And I'm going to give you four. These are fill-ins. If the virgin birth is true, then it then it then it is it's the foundation or it's necessary for four key things, okay? The first is it's the foundation of accuracy and trustworthiness of the scriptures. The virgin birth had to have happened exactly like it was said. Otherwise, the Bible itself is untrustworthy. If the virgin birth did not happen, don't trust the book. That's how important. It's the foundation of the accuracy of Scripture. If you throw out the virgin birth and the virgin conception, you have to throw out the Bible as well because the Bible is very clear. In Genesis 3 and Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 and Galatians 4 and Luke 1, that he was virgin born. So again, this is huge. So when I go back to those those men that are even in the pastorate, and you know, three, uh, a third to two thirds of them are not agreeing with the virgin birth. What are you really saying? That they're preaching a book they don't agree with. That they're picking and choosing. Well, I think God said that. I don't think He said that. No, we have to defend it because the veracity. And the truthfulness of Scripture is at stake. So, foundation of the trustworthiness of Scripture. How about number two? It is the foundation of the person of Christ. Remember that passage we looked at in Matthew 22? Whose son is he? (laughs) Talking about the Messiah, the Christ. They said, well, the son of David. But then why did David call him Lord? Well, because we, we find through the virgin conception that is not just that he is not just the son of David he is also the son of God so the very person of Christ is at stake not only his person of Christ but his personhood by the way if i ask you this question when he was when he was conceived was was there a new person being conceived in the womb don't answer the answer is no Let's remember that. There's not a new person. His personhood was already from eternity past, right? He's eternal. As is done in all normal conceptions, a new person would be developed, but not in the sense of Jesus Christ. Mary's conception of Christ was to be the incarnation of an already existing person. He existed from eternity past. And I'm going to read another part of Berkman's theology because... This work of the Holy Spirit did not include the creation of Jesus' personhood, for this, together with his divine nature, existed from eternity. With with his incarnation, God the Son did not acquire another personhood, so that he was a combination of two persons, one divine and the other human. Rather, he acquired another nature, so that there were united in him one person, the nature of God and the nature of man. So that's what happened at the conception. 
Jesus Christ, who is from all eternity past, has been a person, second person of the Trinity. He didn't, there wasn't a new person. It was just the divine nature and the person, a, a human nature was joined. So now he is the God-man. But that is all dependent on the fact of a virgin conception. The very person of Christ is at stake. Not only that, but then again, he is the God-man. Not just God, but the God-man. Two natures, one person. From eternity, God the Son was a person who possessed the divine nature, the nature of God. Upon his incarnation, he took upon himself a human nature, divinely created of Mary's substance. But he continued to have his divine nature. The union of these two natures in one person is is called the hypostatic union. The God-man, two natures, one person. You feel like a little deep here? I just want you to grab it, though. See, I wouldn't want you to say this to someone. Yeah, when Jesus was conceived, there, you know, his person was was created. No, it wasn't. Don't you believe that he was from eternity past? Well, I do. Well, no, the person is there. The hypostatic union. 100% deity, God, 100% humanity. God with what? Us. God with us. God in human flesh. So, in his incarnation, God the Son did not assume a human person, but a human nature divinely made, again, of Mary's substance. That's what we want to remember. A human nature was, as it were, added. Now do we see how important it is to his person how about the third thing? It is not only the, the foundation of Scripture, it's not only the foundation and necessary for the person of Christ, but also it is foundation of the work of Christ. Not only the person, but the work. What he's going to accomplish. Because Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice for humanity. Why? Because, because he was not born of the man Joseph. Not through Joseph's seed. It was not because of Joseph's seed. He was born without original sin, without the original sin nature. And since he was God, he had the power to defeat death, sin, and Satan on the cross and to be able to redeem you. Everything is because of that. So he came perfect. And many of you, I mean, you've been here in church many, and we've talked about this over, but I hope that, I hope that fact never, never like, oh yeah, oh, what are we eating for dinner anyways? What a perfect plan. God the Father sends His Son, the Eternal One. But He had to be human. He couldn't die for humans unless He was human. He had to have a human nature. But it had to be, He had to be perfect. How are you going to do that? Because all of mankind is sinful. Uh, no human father, because it was through the human father, sin was passed. And Jesus Christ in the, in the manger. And then Jesus Christ running around. And Jesus Christ at age 12 teaching the temple. And Jesus Christ living a perfect life. That's act of obedience. And then Jesus Christ coming to the day when he would go to the cross. It would be possible, let this cup pass from me. But he goes to the cross. Why? For himself? No. He's, he's perfect. But he went to the cross for you. Because the wrath of God and all the wrath of God towards all the sins of mankind that would believe in Him was placed on Him. The fury of God was exhausted on Christ and the cross. Isn't that neat? And we put our faith and trust in the sacrifice of what He did for me on the cross and I can be forgiven 
And that all starts and all go weaves its way back to the virgin conception. Because without that, he's not perfect. He's a sinner. He died on the cross for his own sins. But if it's a virgin conception, he died not for himself. He was perfect. He died for me as the spotless lamb. Not only that, but he's the reigning king. That's the other part of the work of Christ. Not only is the Savior, he's the king. And the, and the curse of Jeconiah, Matthew 1.11, doesn't, doesn't apply to him because though he has the, the, he's in the royal line through, through uh, Joseph, the curse itself does not apply to him because he's also bloodline of Mary. And we looked at that two weeks ago, so we don't need to go there. But the point is this, the very foundation of the work of Christ, both being the Savior and King, is dependent on the virgin conception. And finally, it is the foundation for our own forgiveness, as I just said. Being sinless, Jesus could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of sinful mankind. Peter says this way, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, pure. You know, I think of the lamb. When the lamb came to be slaughtered under the Old Testament covenant, he didn't sin. He was the perfect, it was, a, it was supposed to be a spotless lamb, a lamb that could represent those who he was being sacrificed for. And just remember this, as Christ went to the cross, he was still perfect. Yes, sin was placed on him, but he was perfect. He, he, was, he always has been perfect. He never, some say this, he became a sinner on the cross. That's heresy. Always perfect. Because again, he was born perfect. He was a spotless lamb. John 1.29 says this, The Lamb of God, talking about Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. The question I have for you at this Christmas season, have you embraced him? Have you embraced him? Have you recognized your need for a Savior? Have you recognized that you are a sinner and that your sin is going to be punished by God? The wrath of God is actually over you. Because if you were to die today, you would end up in hell as a sinner that's unforgiven. Have you recognized yourself as a sinner, but have you also recognized yourself and said, I'm not only a sinner and God is holy and his wrath is over me, but God loves me. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, for my sins. He sent his son so that he would pay for my sins on the cross. And if I receive him, if I receive what he has done on my behalf, if I receive him as my substitute, I can be forgiven. Have you recognized that truth? And have you received that truth? Some people understand that truth, but they have not received Christ. They have not bent the knee, repented, and believed and received in the Lord Jesus Christ. The question for you is, have you done that? Have you embraced him? Have you ignored him? Have you denied him? Or have you believed in him? Have you received him? As many as received him, to them he gave the right. What? To become what? Children of God. To those who believe in his name. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, we preach Christ. We preach him crucified. We preach him as Savior. But you know what God is calling you to do? To repent and receive. And I, I'm concerned at times that I wonder if... It's not just, an, oh yeah, I understand what the truth is. No, no. I am a sinner. I deserve damnation. I deserve hell. 
Thankfully, Jesus Christ came and sacrificed himself for me. You know, there was that one song, that new song. It just, it brought tears to my eyes. It's like when, when that guy was holding up like this and the chains are broken. It's like, that's exactly right. We are slaves to sin. And it, it is drowning us towards hell. And Jesus Christ, when he rescues a person, you put your faith and trust in him. He not only forgives your sin, he gives you a new nature. He gives you a new desire. He gives you new uh, focus, a new goal. I mean, he just changed. We're a new creation. I've just been marveling lately at this. We are a new creation. We, we, can, we can actually stand in one minute from now and worship Jesus Christ. And it's not just a, you know, just a, a rote thing from our... It can actually be from our heart. Why? Because when we receive Jesus Christ, he gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart that wants to worship him. Do you have that or are you just religious? You come out of obligation. You come because you don't want other people to think ill of you. Or is it, Lord, I understand exactly what he's saying. I'm a sinner saved by grace. and, And I have a heart to worship you because I can see all that you have done for me, starting with forgiveness. Is that your heart? If that is, I trust that you're going to really just praise God with all your heart as we are able to sing one last song. But if that's not you, you can call on him right now. Confess your sins before him and receive him as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand as we worship him. I wanted Chris to leave that up. Is that you? Is that you? I don't mean physically. I mean spiritually. Is that you? Are you released from your sin? You know, it says in Scripture that when we receive Jesus Christ, we are justified, declared righteous. We are freed from the penalty of sin. That's what it means, declared righteous. Free from the penalty of sin. But now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are being freed from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. The power Sometimes we are freed from the penalty, but we are not often sometimes walking with Jesus Christ and we fall in sin, right? Just understand that the reality is we are no longer uh, slaves of sin. That Jesus Christ can have victory in your life over the very power of sin in your life. You can be sanctified. If you find yourself falling into sins, and understand this, Are you asking for God's help? Are you asking for His direction? Are you allowing the Spirit of God to empower you? Because He wants to have have you free from the power of sin. And someday, we are going to be glorified. We're going to be freed from the actual presence of sin. The very presence of sin. We will be perfected. So, you want to be freed from the penalty. That's You need to get saved. But then you are freed from its power, that sanctification. But thank the Lord, someday it's glorification from the very presence. You won't have to deal with it anymore. Isn't that going to be a great and glorious day? When you don't have to deal with your selfishness and your arrogance and your pride that we have to keep repenting of and all that other sin that goes along with it, isn't that going to be great? It's all through Jesus Christ. It's all through Him. And it all started when He was virgin-conceived. Because he allowed him to be the Savior. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for these marvelous truths. 
Father, help us never to grow tired of of studying this particular doctrine. Father, again, we thank you that it's through teaching and doctrine that we can be sanctified. Lord, convince us of this. It's through the truths of your word. And I pray that you would just help us to have deep, deep conviction in these areas. Lord, again, thank you for coming to this earth that we can be freed people. And I pray again for any person here that has never received you as their Lord and Savior, may this be their day of salvation. And Father, I pray for those who are saved but are constantly falling under the power of sin. Help them to have the hope and the comfort of knowing that through your Spirit they can have victory. And I pray that they would fall on your power, that they would just walk with you as Galatians says. Father, again, we thank you for these truths. May they truly transform our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen.